that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. I'm Luigi Fontana. I'm a professor of medicine and nutrition at the University of Sydney and the Leonard P. Ullman Chair in Translational Metabolic Health, director of the Healthy Longevity Program and a clinical academic at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Before moving to Sydney uh, almost three years ago, I was a professor of medicine at Washington University in St. Louis in U.S., and the director, the co-director of the longevity program. And I also had a joint appointment with the University of Brescia, where I was a professor of medicine. Thank you so much for coming on, Luigi. To begin off, our podcast is called I'm Immortal, a little bit of a play on the word immortal. So what does the word immortal or immortality mean to you? Well, immortal means eternal life. Mm-hmm. And is that how you feel? So if you got the opportunity, would you like to be immortal? We are immortal. Oh. <laughs> oh, what, what do you mean by that? Or immortal? We mean that our physical life is just one of the many transitions that our body, our atoms that we are made of, they go through. It's like, you know, if you see a piece of ice and you say, okay, because now it's getting warmer and the ice is melting. It doesn't exist anymore. No, it, it does exist. Transform into water and then into vapor. And then as a vapor and water, it goes somewhere else. It becomes a plant, an animal, a human, a cell, you know. So it's an immortal transformation of energy and matter into different forms. So I think, you know, we are immortal. It's, it's a wrong perception of how the universe works. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a very creative answer. I don't think we've ever had an answer like that. Normally we follow this up with, would you want to be immortal? But I guess you don't really have a choice in this case, right? We're just Adam. Yeah, we are. We are immortal. You know, it's just, you know, again, you know, is a, a wrong interpretation of how the universe works. And so I think, you know, we are immortal. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to ask a quick question. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey towards becoming the director of Longevity Research Program? Yes, yes. So look, I got my degree in medicine in Verona in Italy beautiful town in North Italy. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a fantastic, <laughs> yeah, beautiful, uh, old Roman. So you, you can see the, there is a Roman amphitheater, theater, and, you know, there is medieval buildings, beautiful. Anyway, I did my medicine there. Then I did my residency in internal medicine in Verona. I spent one year in London at King's College. And then I started my PhD in metabolism. And as I was practicing medicine as a, as a specialist in internal medicine, I didn't like what I was doing. I said, you know, I cannot do this job for the rest of my life. I cannot go in the emergency room and put some bandage on someone comes in, you know, with a myocardial infarction or stroke or cancer, knowing that many of these disease and the suffering linked with this disease are preventable. And so I said, you know, look, I want to understand if we can prevent all this pain and discomfort and suffering and disability. And so I started to look into what we knew back in 2000, 2001, what was known about longevity and health. 
And the only data available were in animals. So we knew that, you know, if you take animals, experimental animals, and, re and you reduce calorie by 30, 40%, these animals live 50, 60% longer. Not only they live longer, but, you know, many of the chronic disease like cancer, cardiovascular, kidney, dementia, and many others are either totally prevented or hugely delayed. All these animals at any age, they are much younger metabolically and physiologically than the ad libitum fed, animals that are eating ad libitum. And so it was really fascinating. Say, oh, fantastic. So there is a biological program that is working in mammals. So what about humans? And so I started to search and I found out, you know, there was this doc professor at Washu called uh, John Holody, you know, one of my best friends. He just died three years ago that was studying exercise and color restriction. So I wrote an email to him. I said, you know, look, you know, I'm interested in what you're doing. That's my interest. And he replied me back in few days, I said, you know, your interests are my interests. Why you don't join me? And so I, I made my luggage and I went to Washu and I stayed there for 17 years. And so I had this beautiful journey with him, you know, where, you know, we, we started to work on uh, the effects of color restriction in humans, comparing color restriction with exercise. And then we moved into fasting, protein restriction and quality of diet, Mediterranean diet and stuff like that. So, you know, just to dissect how nutrition exercise are able to, to modulate some of these important molecular pathways, metabolic molecular pathways that are essential to health and longevity. So as a follow-up question, because when I first heard of your research, in my head, it didn't make sense. Like we're all built, to, we want to eat more and yet we live a shorter life. So is there a particular reason why calorie restriction ends up prolonging lifespan? Because logically, if you tell someone, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah, yeah. So... Basically, what we think is going on, because, you know, the phenomenon that, you know, calorie restriction without malnutrition, with all the vitamins and minerals is extending lifespan is very well known. And now we have data in monkeys, you know, my studies in humans are strongly suggest many of the metabolic molecular preventative actions are also happening in humans. The question is why? So, in nature, animals, and humans are animals, we are designed to procreate. Our main task is to transmit our genes so you know, the species can go on. In, in nature, animals, they don't live long. As soon as they are middle-aged and they lose their strength, they are killed by other younger animals or some very normally harsh death they don't live long. So basically the job is to procreate. Because food is not always available in nature, there are times where there is scarcity, where there is a reduction because there is a flood, there is a drought. you know, there is any natural phenomenon, you know, that can occur, the food is less. When food is less, basically, procreation is not possible. So one of the physiological functions that immediately stops when there is a food scarcity is reproduction. And what is interesting, what we are finding, you know, basically when food is scarce, 
these molecular pathways within our cells that are sensing how much food is available for growth and, and procreation, they shift into a maintenance, sort of a growth and reproduction into a maintenance. So basically they keep the body younger. Mm. Why? Because the idea is that, you know, when food is available again, your body is younger and so therefore can reproduce has less DNA damage, less aging. It gives time for the body, you know, to get food again to, for reproduction. If you take, you know, animals on calorie restriction, you know, a, a mice on average lives two and a half years. Let's say you calorie restrict the animals for two years. And so chronologically they are in menopause, but if you refeed them, you know, if you, if you start to feed them at libitum, they are able to reproduce, even if chronologically they are in menopause. So basically you are delaying the fertility period of life. So it's as powerful. I mean, the effect of this dietary restriction on physiology and metabolism and hormones is huge. You know, it's a, it's a huge program. And that's the reason. The reason is that contrary to Italy, you think, you know, the more I eat, the stronger I am, you know, and, and the longer I live. Instead of it's the opposite because within limit, you know, because if you go below a certain level, then it's starvation and you're going to die. Or if you are eating an unhealthy diet, you know, without all the vitamins and minerals, you know, you're going to die. But, you know, within limits, within limits, you know, like 30, 40% restriction with all the nutrients, basically you are switching your cells from a growth and reproduction mode to a survival protective maintenance mode. You are investing energy to keep yourselves younger and more efficient. Mm -hmm. So you just went through a lot of how eating less keeps you younger and healthier. So how is it that eating extra calories, eating excessive calories, how does that accelerate aging? Well, you know, there are several mechanisms, but the, the most important, so what we discovered in the last 15, 20 years is that there are certain pathways, and in particular, one that is called insulin hydrophonemtor pathway, that mm -hmm. is one of the most important ones. It's not the only one, you know, because there are many that are working together, but, you know, this insulin hydrophonemtor pathway, based on all the studies we did with uh, genetic manipulation of... Um, some of these molecules along this pathway and with drugs like rapamycin, we are able to extend lifespan in all model organisms that we have been studying. So the insulin IGF-1 pathway is a pathway that is stimulated by the binding of insulin and IGF-1 to the insulin receptor and the IGF-1 receptor. So why you have high insulin? You have high insulin when you are becoming insulin resistant. So if you have excess abdominal fat, these adipokines produced by these excessive abdominal fat are inhibiting the insulin signaling. And so you become technically what we call insulin resistant. And when you have insul peripheral insulin resistance, you have compensatory hyperinsulinemia. So the beta cells of the pancreas, they are producing more insulin to try to overcome the insulin resistance. And this excessive binding of insulin to the insulin receptor is triggering this insulin IGF-1 pathway. And uh, the trigger of the insulin IGF-1 pathway by inhibiting FOXO translocation, for example, and activating mTOR is causing 
a reduction in DNA repair pathways, is inhibiting autophagy, is inhibiting antioxidant pathways like SO2 and catalases, is promoting cell proliferation, more cell proliferation, more random mutation, more cancer, more cell senescence, and is also in, uh, inhibiting apoptosis. Apoptosis is a process where when there is a damage within your cell that it cannot be repaired, the, the cells go suicide, goes in suicide, okay? So, so that's what we are finding. Of course, this is the main one, but then there are other pathways like the Ichi proteins, the NFKB, MIC, and uh, there are many other ones that are basically working together in keeping our cells younger, more efficient in getting rid of... Uh, dysfunctional proteins, dysfunctional organelles, increasing DNA repair, antioxidant, and, and so on, so on and so forth. And the beauty is that, you know, only 50 years ago, we didn't know anything about it. You know, we knew, you know, color restriction was extending lifespan, but it was a black box. We didn't know why. And because of all these experiments by using animal models, simple model organisms and, and rodent studies by knocking down genes or overexpressing genes, you know, now we are, have a clearer understanding of what's going on. Okay. So now that you've, I mean, you outlined one pathway for us. I don't think we need to go through all the pathways like you mentioned. This exactly. It was just an example of how right. science by using technology has discovered the secret, the cellular mechanisms. Okay. Yeah. So now that we know a little bit more about how a diet relates to longevity, and I think the current record right now for as long as someone has ever lived is like 122-ish. Mm -hmm. So let's say you could start everyone on the ideal diet since they were a kid. How long do you anticipate like the maximum lifespan is with the ideal diet? Well, you know, we don't know. But, you know, let me put it in this way. Based on several line of research, including the homozygous twin studies, so twins that are genetically identical, we know that around 30%, 25% of your probability of living a longer or, or shorter life is due to the genes that you have inherited from your parents, okay? So 75% is due to environmental factors. And even in centenarians, there are studies by Sebastiane Pearls at Tufts showing that, you know, 40% of the lifespan in centenarians is due to genes and the rest is due to environmental factors. So let, let me put it in this way. You know, if you're born in a family where your parents are unlucky and on an average lifestyle, they live 65 years, if you're smoking, over drinking, if you're obese, not exercising, you're going to die when you're 50. If you do everything right, if you do everything good, probably you're going to make to 80, 85. But if you are born in the family of Calme, the woman who died at 122, and she didn't do color restriction exercise, she was not doing anything, probably you can make, you know, to 140, 150. Wow. With her genes, with her, with her genetic background. Instead of if you do everything wrong, you know, if you're smoking and, you know, taking drugs and that, probably you're going to die when you're 90. Okay. Okay. So pretty much the rule is we should still aim to all be healthier, even if we're not Jean Clement. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's like, you know, it's like as Spinoza says, 
people, they think they are free. In reality, we are not free. There are certain constraints that are genetically determined. You know, even if mice, they live two and a half years, they will never live 80 years, okay? Maybe, you know, they're going to become four years, five years, but not 80 years. Monkeys, Rhesus monkeys, on average, they live 27 years. The longest lived monkey was a monkey nicknamed Sherman, who lived 44 years on color restriction. Okay, this is one of the, the monkeys of the NIA color restriction study. And she lived 44 years. If you do an equation, it's like 135 years for a human being. But I doubt that a rhesus monkey is going to live 80 years. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. So I'm going to jump into a little bit of a demographic type of question. So various countries have various diets and various lifestyles. Which countries as of now in 2021 are good lifestyle examples and have longer living populations due to diet and exercise? Well, you know, if you look at the data, you know, the Japanese right now have the highest number of uh, octogenarian, nonagenarian centenarians in the world. Even if things are changing because the lifestyle in Japan has changed quite dramatically lately, I will say Japan and then, you know, Spain, Italy, and, uh, and then, you know, you have, you know, Switzerland and Scandinavian countries. But, you know, many of these improvements are due to major improvements in public health. You know, we went from 45 years on average of lifespan in 1850 to 80 and 84, 84 men and 84 for women in 2020 in many developed countries. But this is because we drastically improved public health and hospital and medication. So we have a number of people that are living longer, but they are not living healthier. And US is a good example where, you know, they spend a fortune. I think, you know, the budget of NIH of health, it's like, 3.3 3.3 trillions last year. They spent 3.3 trillion dollars in health, and the results are are poor. You know, basically the life expectancy of Americans is few years shorter than Italians or Japanese because of the super unhealthy lifestyle of many Americans. The, the epidemic of obesity that now is really appalling. You know. 40% of men and women in certain states of US are obese. And if you put obesity in overweight, you know, we, we are now close to 75%. It's a, it's a disaster. It's a disaster. In fact, you know, in some counties, lifespan is going down. For the first time in the last oh 50 my. years, instead of increasing lifespan, lifespan is, is coming down. Oh, wait, can I ask, is the main reason lifespan is going down in some countries purely because of? diet or like what's the reason that we're seeing this change only now because of the epidemic of obesity is increasing you know if you look in 1980s basically the number of obese and overweight people was a fraction of what it is now so every year there is an increase in the number of obese and overweight people in us so we think that obesity is a major driver of this phenomenon is an explosion of obesity in U.S. Obesity and, you know, all the other related, you know, there is uh, obesity, unhealthy food and over drinking, smoking and sedentary lifestyle. 
if you if you watch a movie of 1980s you know and you look at the characters they were much much leaner than now you know if you look at a movie now you know you look at the people around you know you can immediately see you know that people were much leaner than they are now and um, you know i live 17 years in us you know if you go to my to the cafeteria of my my university that is one of the top medical school in us is appalling the number of super obese individuals it's it's normal you know i was abnormal i was the abnormal guy the majority of people they were you know overweight obese super obese it's, it's terrible okay i know there's a lot of misconception um, and you pointed out a bit earlier how the mediterranean diet it's looked up to as a good diet to possibly follow but at the same time i feel like one there's a lot of countries around the mediterranean and two a lot of people have misconceptions like oh Italy, that means pizza. And they're like, no, that's not what it means. So could you sort of describe what an actual Mediterranean diet consists of that would help prolong longevity? Look, you know, I wrote a book called The Path to Longevity, where, you know, I summarize, I mean, this is like 350 pages, you know, so, you know, to summarize in one hour, you know, all this concept is going to be difficult. But let me try to answer your question. A Mediterranean diet, as you said, is just something that it's impalpable. You know, what does it mean a Mediterranean diet? You know, as you said, you know, there are 22 countries or 24 countries. And yes, they have some commonality if you compare the food of the Mediterranean countries compared to the food of uh, Germany or England or, or Sweden, but it's not mechanistic enough. The concept is that if you're eating less animal food, you know, what is the typical Mediterranean diet? At least the one that Ansel Keys described in 1950 when he moved to Italy. So basically the story is that this professor of Minnesota, Ansel Keys, was basically studying why in U.S. after World War II, there was a huge increase in myocardial infarction. There were a lot of young middle-aged individuals who were dropping dead because of myocardial infarction. And they didn't know why. In 1950, we didn't know that, you know, cholesterol, blood pressure, glucose, central obesity were risk factor for myocardial infarction. We didn't know that. And he met, you know, with a guy, with an Italian professor at a conference in Rome of the food uh, of the fowl. And he said, you know, look, you know, in Naples, we don't have myocardial infarction. I said, I don't believe it. Yeah, come and see me. So basically he was lecturing in Scotland or anyway in UK and he, he drove his car from UK to Naples and then he spent many years there and he studied the Mediterranean diet. And he found that basically at that time in Naples after World War II, people were eating meat once every 10, 15 days. Most of their diet was homemade, minimally processed bread and pasta. So with whole grains, not refined grains, lots of legumes, lentils, chickpeas, fava beans, you know, borlotti beans, you know, navy beans, you know, very, very beautifully done. My grandma is from South Italy, as I tell in my book. And uh, so they were super expert in creating these very tasty recipes, you know, full of flavor and spices and, you know, with some olive oil. They were drinking, you know, one glass of wine per meals. 
They were eating lots of vegetables and local fruits and some fish, nuts, seeds. So basically, this is the Mediterranean diet that Ansel Keys found to be linked with very low risk of cardiovascular disease. Basically, cardiovascular disease, myocardial infarction, stroke were unknown in Naples, you know, after World War II. But as you said, the Okinawans that are not eating a Mediterranean diet that were living in the Okinawa Island that basically south of Japan, they also had very low cardiovascular cancer, uh, diabetes, a stroke, and, and they had a higher number of centenarians in the same historical time. Because again, you know, after World War II, the Americans, the occupied part of Okinawa, where still they have a military base, and they did basically, the doctors of the army, they did a the survey and they were basically uh, looking at what the Okinawans were eating. And the Okinawans were eating a diet that was very rich in unrefined carbohydrates. You know, instead of wheat grains, you know, the Okinawans, they were eating uh, the, the sweet potatoes, the local sweet potatoes, very rich in, you know, the purple one, you know, all these, you know, very rich in carotenoids. So basically carbohydrates from sweet potato was the, the main, the staple food with uh, some uh, tofu, soybeans and legumes, lots of local vegetables, some fish, meat was very rare, you know, once in a while, local fruits. So this was the diet of the Okinawans that is not a Mediterranean diet, but has the same principle, very low animal products, some fish, lots of legumes. Uh, complex carbohydrates, not refined, not white sugar, white bread, white rice, but, you know, complex carbohydrates, rich in phytochemicals and vitamins, some nuts and seeds. So that's the diet. Is only the diet? No, it's not only the diet. As I say in my book, you know, diet is one of the components. Exercise is very important, and there are several mechanisms why exercise is acting on some of these longevity pathways including the insulin pathway and uh, cognitive training, you know, relationship. Even if you are super healthy and you eat, you know, a healthy diet, but you live in a very bad environment with a lot of anger, a lot of bad emotions, you know, this is detrimental for health. You know, we know that depression and stuff, you know, they increase inflammation, they increase, they have immune dysregulating effects, you know. So it's a combination of factors. We have been studying diet, you know, but there are other factors that are contributing to improve our health, both our physical metabolic health, our emotional, creative and intelligent self. You know, who cares, you know, to live long if you are a nasty, angry, uh, selfish, greedy human being. Now that we mentioned that, I was reading your book and one of the things you mentioned is with regards to the Okinawans was mental health in terms of like, they're not getting old together, right? They have a community there. Because I think you mentioned like loneliness is a huge factor, right? You know, you might live a long time. But like you said, if you're just yeah. this mean person who's lonely, and just there's nothing good going on, that's terrible. And it affects your health as well. So this is a little bit of an aside, but are there any methods to help older people foster that same sort of sense of community to help them better the health together instead of just focusing individually? Well, look, you know, that's not my field of expertise, okay? Oh, so you know, I'm not an expert of... Uh, but 
I've been living, you know, in many countries, you know, I've been living again, you know, in Italy, Germany, UK, US, now Australia for three years. I've been traveling for conferences, for lectures all over the world. My understanding is that, of course, culture is very important. When you are born somewhere in a, in a certain historical, cultural environment, you absorb, you know, what is there you know, the dogmas, the values, because you, you see what your parents are doing, you know, as you learn you know, how to speak Chinese or Japanese or Italian, you also absorb what are the conventions, the dogmas, you know, the habits and stuff like that. And what I can see is that in Italy, in South Italy, as in Okinawa, families are very important. As you're born, you know, you, the idea that, you know, your parents and your brother and sisters, you know, your cousins, you know, your extended family is very important. There is this respect, you know, this willingness, you know, to live together, to support each other is very important. Instead of, for example, in this country, Australia, and when I was living in London, is the opposite. They are very individualistic. For example, believe it or not, I've been calling my mom, even if I'm living in Australia or US, every single day. Oh, for my entire life. And, you know, we talk for half an hour, you know, and uh, maybe when I'm eating at dinner, stuff like that. When I was in London and I told to my, my colleagues, you know, that I was calling my mom every day, say, are you crazy? I call <laughs> my mom twice a year. And sometimes if I tell her, may I come home? She tells me, no, 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 I have to play bridge. You cannot come. <laughs> And that's one of the reasons why in this country, in Australia, the number of people with mental disease is huge. In Australia, there is a ministry of health and there is a ministry of mental health. The number of people who are abusing with alcohol and drugs is huge in this country. There is this obsession with getting drunk, with getting wasted. And I think that one of the components of these mental emotional issues that is very common in these kind of Anglo-Saxon countries, North European countries, and less so in India, South Europe, Asia, Japan, is even if Japan is getting worse, you know, because, you know, they are living in these packed towns with too many people, you know, but, you know, let, let, let's talk the traditional Japan, you know, where we're living in a more, you know, nice environment in the countryside, is that basically there is this uh, very extroverted relationship with other people, caring of other people and uh, supportive. Instead of, you know, these societies, they are very individualistic, very selfish, even within the family. So basically you cannot count on your parents. You cannot... You don't have this emotional bondage where, you know, when you have problems and in love, we have problems. You cannot talk with your mom and father in a freely way. And so basically you are alone. You are, you know, you are left alone since you are a kid. You, you don't have an emotional support. You know, you, you cannot count on, on someone you love and they love you and, you know, they love you. And I think, you know, this has huge emotional consequences and has a huge emotional and lifestyle consequences that go very well beyond the metabolic physical health.
since we're on the topic of mental health i just want to ask this very quickly um, i know a lot of these mental health issues like depression or anxiety they cause you to not live life in a healthy lifestyle whether that's having the motivation to get up and go exercise or get up and make yourself a healthy meal so how is it that these psychological stresses how do they impact how we deal with our metabolism and our immune system Look, you know, this is a very question. Again, you know, I'm not an expert. I've been reading a lot about it, you know, but, you know, the, our understanding of how mental health and emotional health is impacting our metabolic health, inflammation, immune system is very rudimental. There are a number of new studies, but they are very, very, very limited, you know, and uh, I'm a doctor and I'm teaching a university to medical students. And unfortunately, as I, as I told, you know, I've been teaching and working in Europe, in US, now in Australia, and everywhere, unfortunately, the focus is on treating diseases, not preventing diseases. Mm. You know, you go through medical school with almost zero uh, teaching about, you know, how lifestyle are mechanistically important for preventing diseases. There is no mention about emotional health, and as you said, you know, the consequences. So if you are emotional unwell how can you basically take care of yourself yeah if you are wasted you know mentally and then you, you of course you know the only way you can cope with your life is to drink or take drugs or becoming you know obsessed with something you know can be video game can be anything and then you know instead of using your energy to invest to stay healthier enjoy life enjoy your friends your family investing your energy in creating something, painting, writing, poetry, music. Uh, you waste your time in front of a whiskey or a, wine, a bottle of wine or a beer or, a, you know, cocaine or whatever, you know, basically, or Facebook, you know, by watching for hours what other people post. is a problem. It's a big problem. But I think, you know, our society is not ready yet, you know, to, to understand that what people do and the education is super important. So going back, you know, to the analogy, right now, all the medical systems is concentrated, most of the medical system is concentrated in uh, treating diseases, not preventing them. Let me make an analogy. Let's say you buy a new car. Okay. Now you go to a, one of these uh, shop and you say, okay, I'm buying a new Ferrari or a new Mercedes. And let's suppose that, you know, the guy who sells the car doesn't give you any instruction on how to take care of the car. Mm. So he doesn't tell you that, you know, every 5,000 or 10,000 kilometers, you have to change your oil. Doesn't tell you, that, you know, you have to change your tires. Doesn't change that you have to change your brake pads. Nothing. So you start to drive this car happily. And the car is it's working beautifully because it's new. Mm -hmm. But you have to be a genius to understand that if you don't do anything, probably around 20, 25,000 K, your car is going to die. Or because, you know, the oil is, is gone and, and basically the engine is, is going to be destroyed. Or because, you know, your tires are bald and, you know, you're going to, there is some rain and you're going to basically lose control and you're going to, or your brake, brake pads or whatever. You know what I mean? Instead of if you take good care of your car, your Mercedes can easily last 300,000 kilometers instead of 
30,000 kilometers. And that's exactly what's happening in our society. People have no clue about what they have to do to keep their body healthy. There is no education. You go through primary, secondary, university, and there is nothing. They teach us everything about coding, math, algebra, calculus, poets, grammar, but nothing about what I'm telling in my book. So basically, what are the mechanisms driving aging, how exercise, different type of exercise, different type of nutrition, calories, and you know, mindfulness act on many metabolic, molecular, and other pathways? Nothing. You think it's normal in a society that the most important education that is, first of all, how can you stay healthy? How can you improve your emotional health? How can you improve your intuitive, creative health is not a key subject that should be taught in primary, secondary, and tertiary school. So some of my colleagues and some of people I know, they say, you know, ah, yes, well, you know, people, they will never change their lives. You know, I like my food. What does it mean I like my food? You know, you, you, you are Indian from what I can see, isn't it? I'm Bengali, yeah. Yeah, so what you like... It's not what I like because you are born, you know, where, you know, your mom was preparing, you know, the dahal, very spicy, you know, with certain spices that are very friendly to you and you love them. Yeah. Yeah. And instead of if you're born in England or if you're born in Japan, you know, the type of food is completely different. So, the taste is not something that is, is something that, you know, you, you are born with, you know, because, you know, there is even emotional, you know, linkage, you know, with your infancy, your mother, your parents, your traditions. So I think the problem, you know, that, you know, there is no education. It's like if you say to my kid, do you prefer to play on your games or your PlayStation or you prefer go, to go to school? You know the answer. If you mm-hmm. let him free... Probably he's gonna go to school twice a week, and then he's gonna stay in front of the TV all day long. Yeah. But instead, what we do, we force them to go to school. They have to go to school, and step by step, eventually they become engineer, doctors, lawyers. Because step by step, day by day, in 15, 18 years of education, they build that knowledge that allows them to design an airplane, to design, you know, an iPhone. And uh, you know what I mean? But if you let them play all day long, what is going to happen? Nothing. They're going to become ignorant. They're going to stay ignorant. So it's the same concept. You know, I think if people, they were slowly educated about health and how to eat healthy and how to exercise, use their mindfulness and other stuff, you know, to become better human being, healthier human being, then this is going to become part of our, it's going to become like second nature. I know we don't want to keep you too long today. And that seems like a, the the overall message of today's podcast seems very clear, but because what you're talking about is a larger societal problem, right? Like we've normalized unhealthiness almost in a sense, but for someone who wants to take control of their life today, whether it be diet or exercise, is there a recommended way to like sort of get them into this healthy habit and for them to stick on it for the rest of their life? Yes. As I said, you know, there are a number 
of interventions. There is not another problem with our current society. You know, people, they look for a magic fix. Give me something. Give me one thing. One day is the paleo, one day is the five to die, the other day is going to be the ketogenic diet, and then, you know, this and that, you know. But in reality, it's like if you ask me, can you give me like an easy way to become a doctor? Just something simple. <laughs> give, give me like a booklet, you know, give me like, you know, one maximum 50 pages that explains me how to become a good doctor. Can you give me like a 50 pages book, you know, how to become an engineer? Mm-hmm. Are you crazy? Are you kidding me? So that's, you know, another problem, you know, you know, we are living in a society where people, they want some magic fix. And there are, unfortunately, a lot of people out there that are selling. Don't worry, you know, we're going to find a pill for you. A pill that is going to mimic calorie restriction or it's going to do mimic exercise and stuff like that. Don't mm-hmm. worry. Keep doing your crazy life. And then, you know, we're going to give you something. No, no, I'm sorry. Doesn't work like that. Because even if in principle, as we said, you know, we can find some drugs that are going to mimic color restriction. I don't believe in that. I think, you know, that maybe some drugs can potentiate the effects of healthy lifestyle, but they cannot substitute a healthy lifestyle. But what about emotional health? As we said before, what about spirituality? Do you want to create a pill? Who wants to live a dull, selfish lonely life and live and live maybe 90 years 100 years as a selfish greedy lonely person what's the point that's life i don't believe so at least that's my point of view yeah life is just basically a beautiful journey where you know we can explore ourselves we can explore the walls make friends encounter people, see beautiful stuff, create something, you know, music, art, poetry. We can do a lot of fantastic stuff, live our lives. If we are healthier, physically, metabolically, psychologically, spiritually, we're going to be in a better place to enjoy this journey than just living immortally, a boring, selfish, greedy, environmental, destructive life. So I try to summarize this concept in my book, as I said, it's called The Path to Longevity, where I tried, you know, to describe what I think, you know, it's my point of view. I understand, you know, you know, I don't know everything, you know, but I've been working in this field for the last 30 years. If I, if I put together, you know, my MD and specialization and my research, you know, basically is almost... 34 years that I've been working in this field and not only scientifically but as a human being I'm interested in the whole idea of health so basically not only metabolic health but also again I said you know emotional spiritual creative health environmental health a lot of people they don't understand let's assume that you know they're going to be a drug for each disease so where are all the metabolites of these drugs? Where are they going to end up? So people, do they realize that, you know, when they take a chemotherapy agents and antidepressant, they pee and poop these, these metabolites and they end up in their river, in their fish. There are experiments showing that, you know, you can find metabolites of antidepressants, anti-inflammatory chemotherapy agents in their fish they're eating. Mm-hmm. 
in the food they're eating. So if billions of people, they are taking medications, we are destroying this environment. In, in 70 years, you know, we, are, we have destroyed this environment. You know, we are destroying forests. You know, we are polluting the, the oceans. You know, we are destroying the topsoil just because we are greedy. Can you imagine oh, 7 billion people eating meat three times a week? What it's going to do for the planet? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So if someone's a student or somebody who's very excited to get involved in this field, what can they do to get involved in the field that you're an expert in? How do they start? Look, probably they have to start like how I did, you know, basically is first of all, to understand, you know, what they love, you know, what, what they are really interested in. Like, you know, when I was a, like a 27 years old resident in internal medicine, I said, you know, look, you know, I, I cannot do this job for the rest of my life. What are my interests? So I spent time to understand what I was really interested in. Mm -hmm. And then I started to search. I said, you know, who is working in this field? Who is the best? Who is the guy who is really doing advanced science in this field? I started to search. I found, you know, it took probably six months, eight months to find out that this John Hollows existed. I sent emails around, said, you know, who is working on this field? And, you know, the, and then, you know, Richard Weindruck, is one of the top guy in color restriction in, in mice, told me, look, you know, I'm working in mice and monkeys. If you want to work on humans, there is my friend in St. Louis, John Holozy. Write to him. I wrote to him and I went there. And then, you know, because I had a passion to understand this one, I started to do my research. I started to think because, you know, John Holozy, what he taught me is to think independently. So the good thing of having a good mentor is that, you know, he allows you to think independently, to start to process, to don't believe dogmas, but, you know, to challenge, you know, what, what, what people think is the truth and, and challenge the truth and come up with, you, with your own uh, ideas, test your ideas and progress. Okay, well, we won't keep you any further, <laughs> Luigi, since I know you've discussed a lot today. Um, yes. So, right, for any of you guys listening, Dr. Vitana, Luigi's book will be in the description below, Path Longevity. I think you had the quote in there about reaching 100 as if you're with the health of a 40-year-old, so definitely read that. Once again, Luigi, thank you for coming on the podcast. This is I'm Immortal, your source for all things immortal, and we really appreciate you coming on to take the time to speak with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on.